1: Hi there, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. And I'm looking to to do something a bit different uh, over the next few weeks um, and engage with something a a, a bit more theoretical. Some people like that. Not for everybody, but anyway. There's a book that I have referenced a couple of times on the podcast, Maoism, A Global History by Julia Lovell. And it's one of the most kind of concise uh, and sort of uh, clear attempts to define this this very complicated and um, sort of diffuse set of ideas uh, rolled into kind of one supposedly coherent ideology Um, Maoism is really quite unlike and, and bears very little resemblance to marxist leninism as part of the, the kind of the family of um of marxist ideas it bears very little resemblance to um the works of marx at, at all really and i believe that mao had little actual interest in either marx or lenin um other than um a a, a sort of a, a beginning point for for his ideas and Julia Lovell sets out the kind of the various sort of strands of Maoist thought. And so um, I, I think it's really instructive over the next few weeks to dive into this question of what Maoism actually is. And it's very difficult to define, but it is what I would call an insurrectionist ideology. It has less of a historical endpoint. That it is is working towards, um, and more of a a sense that it it is a tool for anti-imperialism. Um, the extent to which Marxist Leninism really engaged with anti-imperial struggles is 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 debatable, um, and one one could argue that it that uh, after nineteen seventeen there were. Brief moments in the history of the Soviet Union where anti-imperialist struggle was uh, something that was a priority, but for large parts of the history of the USSR, it it really, really wasn't. And socialism in one country came, obviously, came to define it. But that's a a different conversation. So what we're going to do today is in in the first of these kind of um, explorations of Maoism. We're going to look at the, the beginnings of the chapter by Julia Lovell in uh, Maoism and Global history. Um, what is Maoism? And Julia Lovell writes. In the first week of January 19, um, 2016 in the first week of January 2016, a vast golden statue of Mao was unveiled in the middle of Henan country uh, countryside in central China. Looming out of frozen brown fields under grey skies, over thirty-six meters high, it cost three hundred and twelve thousand pounds to build, and was paid for by local people and businessmen. For forty-eight hours, tourists gathered to take selfies with this curious effigy. Apart from the swept-back receding hairline, the statue's head barely resembled Mao. The statue was, word had it, the brainchild of uh, uh, of one Mister Sun Qingxin. Um, a local food processing entrepreneur crazy for the helmsman his factory is full of mouths testified a local potato farmer commentators in the chinese cybersphere had different divergent responses eternal life to mao Zedong. he is our legend our god we should worship him crazy pull it down it doesn't look like him he should have been sitting on the sofa Use the money to build roads and clinics instead, others argued. Then, on the 7th of January, a black cloth was draped over Mao's head and the statue was destroyed by public security officials, leaving behind only rubble and rumours that it had violated planning regulations. Even the usually authoritative People's Daily was puzzled by the whole business, confessing that reasons for the demolition are not clear. Several locals wept as the statue came down, among them probably descendants of the multitudes. One analyst put the figure at 7.8 million, who died in Henan during the 1960s famine, caused by Mao's policies. The mysterious rise and fall of gold of the golden Mao, Colossus, of Henan, evokes the elusive quality of Mao and Maoism, both in and beyond China. The term Maoism became popular in the 1950s, denote Anglo-American summaries of the system of political thought and practice instituted across the New People's Republic of China. Since then, writes Julia Level, it has had a fractious history. Its Chinese translation, Mao Zuyi, has never been endorsed by CCP, Chinese Communist Party, uh, ideologues. It is a dismissive term used by liberals to describe adulation for Mao among contemporary China's alt left or by government analysis analysts to describe and disavow Maoist policies in India or Nepal today. This group, sniffed the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs when protesting the use of the tag by the Communist Party of Nepal, Maoist, has nothing to do with China and we feel indignant that they usurp the name of Mao Zedong, the great leader of the Chinese people. Orthodox Chinese analysts use the more liberal, more cerebral term Mao Zedong thought. Yet for all its imperfections, it will be used here because it has become the most commonly used term uh, for the successful um, Chinese Communist program um, from the 1930s to the present day. It has validity uh, only on uh, the understanding that the Maoist program, despite possessing a solid symbolic core in the shape of Mao himself, has taken various and often contradictory forms over the decades and continents, according to context. It comes into formal existence in the early 1940s, though built on antecedents from earlier in Mao's life and thought. This chapter, and the subsequent podcasts from it, sets out the core features of the programme, as Mao and his later disciples in China and beyond saw them, organising them in the style of that ubiquitous badge of the high 1960s Maoism, of high 1960s Maoism, um, The Little Red Book, by a series of key quotations. It sorts between the derivative and the original uh, in Mao's ideas, where they overlap uh, with and differ from Mao's Soviet predecessors. Some of those differences are in, the ki- in kind, others in degree. In the former category, there is Mao's veneration of the peasantry as a revolutionary force, and his lifelong tenderness for anarchic rebellion against authority. In the latter category belonging uh, belong central tenants, central elements of Leninist uh, the Leninist-Stalinist project. With its veneration of political violence, its championing of anti-colonial resistance, and its use of thought control techniques um, to forge your discipline to increase increasing really repre- repressive party in society. So there's a lot to unpack there. I think firstly, um, the idea that, I mean, that, that um, Maoism was simply a kind of a, a hybrid of Marxist Leninism um, is, is, is probably a, a little reductive, a little um, too simplified. It contains various other the factors that are, are born of the kind of the context of Maoist experience uh, or Mao's personal experience and the experience of the Chinese Communist Party from the 1930s onwards. And the fact that the Chinese Communist Party, uh, in a way far more so than uh, the the Bolsheviks experienced during the Russian Civil War, believed and saw themselves as fighting an anti-colonial struggle. China had effectively been colonised by European powers and by Japan since the 1840s and continued to be colonised until the late 1940s. And it was only after a a victory of the um, Chinese communists that you that uh, colonial powers uh, finally left uh, China and part of the the kind of the popularity and part of the um, the magnetism of Mao and the Communists was that they would deliver to China the um, final victory over China's subjugation and humiliation for a century um, and so it, there was always this anti-colonial struggle at the heart of Mao's ideas. And Mao believed that exporting it around the world was the the role of, um, of Maoism. He also believed that this is how uh, China would come to lead the communist world and eclipse the Soviet Union by making far more strenuous efforts in Africa and South America and Asia and other places where poor working people um, toiled on the land. Um, And you have to remember that by by 1949, when Mao came to power, a majority of human beings were peasants. It's only been in the last 70 years that there has been this huge transitions transformation away from uh most people most most people on planet earth being uh either smallholders or landless laborers um so mao saw immense potential in peasant labor and and peasant revolution um mao also saw that the um, or believe that institutions that were uh, allowed to simply establish themselves and continue without endless kind of uh, upheaval and revolt would atrophy into kind of something approximating capitalism in the end. And this, in a way, was part of the explanation for the later Cultural Revolution. I mean, the other part of the explanation is Mao's desire to continue to be relevant and Mao's desire for revenge. So in order for us to understand the first point of um, Julia Lovell's summary of Marxist-Leninist thought, um, the famous aphorism, power comes from the barrel of a gun, um, we have to go back to the purge of the communists by the nationalists in Shanghai on the 12th of April 1927. At four a.m., a bugle call from the headquarters of the Nationalist Party on Route Gizi, in the far south of the French concession, was answered by the siren from a gunboat moored on the city's east side. Members of Shanghai's most powerful triad, the Green Gang, disguised in blue factory workers' uniforms and white with white armbands, converged on communist strongholds scattered through the low rise Chinese quarters of the city. Sunrise was still an hour and a half away when machine gun fire rattled through the darkness. Everyone who worked with, uh, um, uh, every worker who resisted was shot down. Others were lashed together and marched away for execution. A general strike was called for the following day, but those who turned out for protest uh, demonstration were brought down by nationalist machine gun fire, rifle butts and bayonets. The protesters had put women and children at the front of the march, assuming that nationalists wouldn't, um, and nationalist troops would not open fire. More than 300 were killed that day, witnesses reckoned, and a far larger number wounded, some of whom were buried alive with the dead. Three weeks earlier, communist prospects in the city had looked very different. In the last 10 days of March, Shanghai's warlord ruler, had surrendered the metropolis to a coalition of armed pickets and organi- uh, organized by the young communist Chinese Communist Party. Strikers had first shut down the city and then, initially armed with only 100 rifles, 250 pistols and 200, ha- 200 hand grenades, plus propaganda leaflets, posters and um, newspapers, had fought for shipyards, police stations and railways. The, talking, the, the taking of the city was crucial to the, up, um, to the uprising launched in 1926, the so-called Northern Exposition, China's second revolution in 15 years, against army strongmen who had carved the country into regional kingdoms. The 1911 revolution was brought to an end, uh, brought to an end some 2,000 years of dynastic rule. Within five years, the central authority had disintegrated um, with the rise of warlords and provincial commanders, the young republic still had a president in, in the capital Beijing, but his authority over the localities was normal. Nonetheless, faith in the the idea of a unified China persisted. Urban China, particularly peri- um, in particular, periodic um, in particular, periodically ad- erupted with discontent at the new status quo for political paralysis. Uh, and a fragmented military rule made China domestically and internationally vulnerable. On the 4th of May 1919, patriotic protests in Beijing and Shanghai broke out after the chi- uh, after China's warlord rulers agreed at the Versailles Conference to sign away a large slice of Northeast China to Japan. By 1923, Sun Yat-sen, the, pub- uh, the Republic's first briefly incumbent president, um, in um. Uh, and a man obsessed with the idea of reunifying China, forged an alliance between his Nationalist Party and the Communists. All funded, trained and armed by the Soviet Union and its Communist International. Sun's death in uh, 1925 notwithstanding, his successor as Nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek launched the Northern Expedition a military campaign to reunite the country uh, the following year. Soviet trained Chinese troops pushed up from the south, fighting or bribing warlords into submission. The forces were, were, were a united front of the Conservative GMD and the more radical CCP. The GMD, Gormandang and the Communist Party. The GMD controlled the formal standing army, but everywhere they fought, their task was made easier by striking workers and peasant activists organized by the Communists, who disrupted the communications, material and authority. Of the new of the old regime so part of Mao's kind of political education is in the the sort of like the bloody ferment of the 1920s and 30s that saw competing factors warlords the Guomindang, the Communist Party and the Japanese all try to kind of outmaneuver one another um, and the Victor, one of the um, powers that, in this this battle that seems to be more likely to succeed, is actually uh, the nationalists and the communists. Learn about nationalist repression firsthand. They form an alliance uh, in 1926 and then are betrayed in 1927. This was an uneasy alliance. The aims and the power base of the two parties were fundamentally at odds, and the GMD had always relied—this is the Kuomintang—had always relied on the money classes for funds, while the communists were devoted to organizing rebellion by China's urban workers and poor farmers. Chiang Kai-shek, leader of the nationalists, marched into the labor unions at the, um, and to Shanghai's foreigners, um, made a secret deal with Shanghai's. Green Gang Leader-in-Chief, Du Yu-Sheng, to break the city's communists. Then on the 11th of April, Du invited Wang xu Hua, the communist leader of the General Labour Union, to a quiet dinner in his French-style villa, where one of Du's green gangs um, green gang underlings strangled him.
0: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for twenty percent off your first purchase.
1: A few hours later, early on the twelfth of April, do you Paid and armed by uh, paid and armed by Ch- uh, Chinese and foreign businessmen, eliminated the unsuspecting, unprepared communist strongholds throughout the city. So, th- there's nothing quite like uh, the machinations of the capitalist classes to inform and educate um, revolutionaries on how to do revolution. And every t- every time that. One, uh, you know, someone like Lenin or Stalin or Mao, um, ever wondered whether, in fact, uh, Marx had been sort of slightly off beam in his views of uh, the counter-revolutionary potential of um, the the bourgeoisie or other capitalist classes? You only have to look to moments like nineteen twenty-seven, where the, uh, the the nationalists. In cahoots with gangsters, paid by Chinese business, um, acts, you know, ruthlessly, violently and brutally to eliminate the, the communists, the trade unions and, and the, the left in general. Now, obviously, when, when Mao comes to power, I mean, this idea of power coming from the barrel of a gun, this is this is Mao's education. Mao realises, much as Lenin realises, that instead of dissolving the state, you want to keep it and reverse what it does. Uh, you need to have the state to wage war on your idea of who the enemy classes are. Um, the, the bourgeoisie, uh, intellectuals, that, that kind of thing, uh, wealthy peasants, landowners. Uh, Lenin in State and Revolution really concludes this. He says, you know, um, previous to this, there had been all sorts of very kind of almost anarcho syndicalist ideas within the Bolsheviks about, uh, you know, abolishing the state and uh, getting rid of private ownership and watching everything wither away and then letting people kind of get on with it. By 1918, Lenin doesn't believe this anymore. Um, and by the mid-1920s, well, 1930s, Mao said he doesn't believe it, if he ever did. Uh, and what he does believe, and what Lenin came to believe, is that the state can actually be exceedingly handy, And that transformation had to happen with violence. You, you can't have a revolution without it. The sort of transformation um, that we are talking of, the uh, social and economic transformation of China, um, the elimination of the landlord class, the uh, redistribution of land and the collectivization and the communalisation of land, um, the transference of uh, wealth from rural to industrial um, and the um, um, change uh, from um, China from a, a kind of a, a nationalist republic to a, a Maoist one-party state uh, needed violence in order to, to make that occur and you need for that a, a large, centralised, bureaucratised violent state willing willing to do uh, the violence that you ask of it. Um, so the f- our first principle, we'll, we'll leave that in just a moment, our first principle is about the, the idea that the origins of power come from coercion and that power itself um, doesn't have ha, have have any other um means of of creating it this this seems kind of fairly fairly sort of obvious obvious stuff but i think the the kind of the degree of violence i mean the 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 extraordinary violence that existed in china between say 1927 and 1949 and in the decades afterwards of course really did inform um you know, people like Mao who saw themselves as fighting this sort of like the forever war. Here's a final thought. Of all the lessons learned by the Chinese Communist Party in its history, the one taught by the bloody spring of 1927 left arguably the deepest impression. To stand a chance of survival, the party needed an army. In 1927, Mao Zedong, one of several party leaders who began to endorse violence at the time, turned the moral of the tale into his best-known aphorism, the one that subsequently migrated from Chinese propaganda posters to Black Panther flyers, from hand-copied Parisian student rags to Indian jungle rallies. Political power comes from the barrel of a gun. Eleven years later, he added the crucial refinement. The party commands the gun, and the gun must never be allowed to command the party this affection for the part, for the, for political violence underpinned the cult that Mao would create over the next half century in the context of the modern of modern political movements respect for the power of the gun was not remotely exceptional indeed fascism celebrated violence more avidly than communism but within the chinese uh, within chinese communism mao's rhetorical intervention was decisive Okay, so we'll leave that for there. We'll return to Julia Lovell next week and look at some more of that. Um, I just want to say thanks to everyone for for listening this week. Um, as you can see, we're really focusing a lot on um, um, trying to get a, an episode out um, every day uh, to really kind of keep that, that momentum going. I hope you find this useful. would love your feedback, so please always feel free to message me. You can find me at uh, Nick Shepley on Twitter. Um. or you can send me a message at nick underscore shepley at hotmail.com um, and if you have any questions or anything you need or you just want to chat i'm always there it's a pleasure to uh, be able to do this for you guys thanks very much and join us on the next explaining history podcast